Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. I'll try and get through it. I'm absolutely exhausted because I just got back from Amman in Jordan where we were doing the first pilot of our four-day training exercise for senior aid people on influencing. Um, and it was absolutely huge fun. Great group of people from the UN, from NGOs, from the Red Cross, Red Crescent. Um, very intense and it was a pilot. So as well as actually doing the training, we were constantly thinking about what needs to be tweaked and all the rest of it. So I, I'm probably going to sort of be a bit more incoherent, even than usual. But I thought I'd better get through this anyway. Otherwise, I'll have loads of posts to go through next week. So here I am back in the UK. Very pleased to be, be here as well. Um, started the week with links I liked. And there was this lovely letter from uh, uh, that a Texan librarian called Amy Milstead received from a, a pupil called Regina who, judging by her writing, this is a primary school. I am of a fearsome mind to throw my arms around every librarian who crosses my path on behalf of the souls they never knew they saved. Truly amazing school librarian is hard to find, difficult to part with and impossible to forget. When you enter this library, you are a scientist, you are an explorer, you are a reader, you're important, you are loved, you are respected. You are the reason we are here. Absolutely gorgeous. Fancy, fancy just getting a letter like that if you're a school librarian. So that was a nice uplifting thing. And then we went straight down into the dark side of you know, which massacres get publicity because obviously we've seen some horrendous massacres like the one in Bucha in Ukraine. But I read on the excellent new humanitarian uh, uh, roundup email um, that in the central Malian town of Mura, Mercenaries from the Kremlin-linked Wagner Group are accused of executing between five, three and 500 people. Never heard of it. Didn't make the headlines. So not even Russian massacres are all equal. It depends who they're massacring. So that was pretty extraordinary. Um, one other thing I'll pull, pull out is league tables. They never fail to uh, have an impact. And in my uh, LSE work, every year there's an annual world ranking, there's probably more than one, of universities by subject. And once again, Institute of Development Studies at Sussex is number one in development studies, followed by SOAS, Oxford, LSE and Cambridge. See any pattern there? Yep, the Brits are the top five spots in the world. Um, and Harvard is at number six. But how long can that go on when the UK government's aid programme is falling apart? Uh, it's kind of interesting. There's a sort of uh, uh, an intellectual aid complex around the universities in Britain, but I've got a feeling it must be vulnerable to the kind of funding cuts we've seen in recent in recent days. Anyway, we shall watch. And then if you're interested, there's a new clip someone's dug up, well done whoever it was, of Prince, the musician, aged 11, being interviewed by a TV reporter because he's supporting striking teachers, which is rather sweet, and some other good stuff on links I liked. Okay, let's go on to the next post. The impact of war on older people in Ukraine and everywhere else. This is a guest post by Justin Derbyshire, who's the CEO of HelpAge International, excellent organization. The war in Ukraine has destroyed everybody's lives regardless of who they are. We have watched in horror as children have been passed over heads onto trains, as fathers left to fight, and a steady trail of exhausted, traumatized people of all ages fleeing further west. But it is an uncomfortable truth that while war does not discriminate, 
the international response does. Time and again, the toll of war on older people is overlooked as they struggle to survive and piece together a new normal. As this conflict unfolds, there are millions of older people confronting the scourge of war, isolated and alone. One in three of the people needing assistance after the Russians invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014 were over 60, making it the world's oldest humanitarian crisis. Yet the international community failed to recognise this, failed to identify and respond effectively to meet their specific needs. For many, conflict was not new, having lived through World War II, Soviet rule and the road to independence. Their bodies, minds and communities were already scarred. When I last visited the region in 2016, I saw the toll that the conflict had taken. The local economy was on its knees, poverty and longer-term unemployment had rocketed, younger people had left for work elsewhere, leaving older relatives alone with nobody to care for them. There was no electricity or gas. Untreated chronic health conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure had caused many to lose their independence, develop disabilities and face unnecessary suffering. The fear of intermittent shelling and the risk of landmines was constant. The contact line exacerbated isolation for many. Those who lived in non-government controlled areas could only access healthcare and pensions by enduring long queues and bureaucracy to cross the line into government-held territory. By 2019, more than 450,000 of the 1.2 million pensioners living in areas outside of government jurisdiction were surviving without a basic income because they were required to register as an internally displaced person, an IDP, to receive their pension. Not only were they living in a state of war, they could barely afford basic food supplies or medication. Now many of the people I met are hidden away within their homes. We surveyed more than 1,500 older people in eastern Ukraine at the beginning of March and found that 99% of older people in Donetsk and Luhansk had no plans to leave. For many, mobility difficulties mean leaving is not possible. Many do not have families nearby to help. Worse still, many cannot even reach the local shelters, making them sitting targets. This experience is not unique. Older people often remain at home in times of conflict. Some may stay because they do not want to be a burden to their families. They want to protect their home or simply because of moving so many times before. But the body vest of being older is no protection for the barbarity of war and the hand of assistance frequently fails to reach them in its aftermath. As the war sweeps further into Ukraine, there will be more older people left behind, isolated and in urgent need of food, water, heating and mental health support. 25% of Ukraine's population is over 60 years old. For those who make it across the border into neighbouring countries, they will also require specific help as they attempt to recover from their journey and navigate new surroundings in a blur. So, I mean, there's more on, on the blog from Justin and I think it's, it's really well, well worth reading, but he concludes, the oldest humanitarian crisis must be a wake-up call for governments and the international community to urgently reset its approach. The specific needs of older Ukrainians must be identified and met. And this should be the start of a more inclusive approach when responding to humanitarian emergencies elsewhere around the world. So maybe that's because I'm getting older, but that seems like a very powerful call to uh, include older people in the way we respond to all these things. Next up, back to thinking and working politically. If you remember last week, I had a couple of posts, one from me and one from some other people being fairly sceptical about where this movement around 
doing programs adaptively, aid programs adaptively, or thinking working politically had got to. Uh, but Lisa Denny from La Trobe, got in, La Trobe University in Melbourne, got in touch, and she um, wanted to put the opposite side of the argument. <clears throat> so her her post is called, called "Localization: An Opportunity for Thinking and Working Politically to Deliver?" Question mark. So. Um, is thinking and working politically on life support? Duncan suggested as much in a recent post. But a webinar on localization, convened by the Thinking and Working Politically Community of Practice, I'll call it TWP from now on, offers an alternative in which locally led development becomes the way for the TWP agenda to remain relevant and responsive to the power and politics that is at the heart of social change. Or as another guest post on FP2P, that's this blog, put it, localization can be the how that gets us to more locally led development. Much of the TWP agenda is about local context, the centrality of local politics and networks, and recognizing that social change is locally led uh, with externals playing at best a supporting role. So locally led development and TWP should be comfortable bedfellows. Locally led development is also a politically smart strategy to respond to current, if depressing, trends. Graham Teske's recent TWP paper highlights and Duncan summarizes that fact. For instance, locally led development can deliver the photogenic, this is in quotes, the photogenic results so beloved of ministers, much better than fly-in international advisors pushing paper. Locally led development can be framed as an effective way forward, given how much development expertise is walking out the door with the closure of DFID and AusAid uh, in UK and Australia, respectively. They've lost loads of really good staff when they scrapped their development ministries. And locally-led development is a better fit to respond to geopolitical realities. <clears throat> but beyond this, locally-led development is not just the bonus track, as one speaker called it, that we do if the wider political economy allows. It is fundamentally an issue of justice, so the question really should be, how do we work politically to support locally-led development, regardless of how conducive the wider political environment is? Too often discussion about locally-led development happens at the level of systemic change. It's a comfortable place for many, but it also avoids conversations about our own workplaces and us as individuals. The development system is never going to change if we keep bemoaning its skewed incentives and carry on with business as usual. So the webinar focused on the organisational level to capture changes organisations are making in spite of system constraints. Happily, this includes a diverse range of creative approaches across donors, and she, um, uh, Lisa, lists some. So USAID is doing some really good work on localization, involving local people in programme design um, and putting local voices and agency at the centre. New Zealand's Minister of, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade um, has changed its procurement methods to enable more Maori and Pacific businesses to win work. Um, and and that, that, that's partly by moving from big long written requests to uh, discussion based bids and including Maori and Pacific people on decision making panels. Cardno, one of the big management consultants who I sometimes work for, uh, do, do the odd bit of work for, their efforts to monitor 25 plus programs in the Asia Pacific for their degree of localization. Um, so that's quite interesting. They're actually trying to develop some measurement tools to see how much programs have localized. And then Oxfam Itaroa, or New Zealand as it used to be called, their experience of becoming an ally to Oxfam Pacific 
and embracing their bicultural ident identity in New Zealand Itaraa. These organisational changes are not separate from system change. They can create peer pressure and interact to create tipping points that contribute to systemic change. They're also not devoid of politics. Shifting to more locally-led development is not a process on which there is consensus. There's pushback and challenge. As one discussant noted, people really give up power willingly, so while some staff might embrace it, others will think it's woke garbage and resist. And then just uh, her conclusion was, discussion about locally-led development often overlooks the individual level, our personal mindsets and worldviews. This can be uncomfortable, but it's where movements like shift the power push us to go. It might feel a long way from, the, from where TWP conversations usually sit, but these discussions are also centrally about power and politics. It's just small p politics of the personal rather than the big p politics of politicians and elites. The TWP agenda has an opportunity to connect these levels, how issues with personal power and privilege, organisational practices and the development system all shape each other in interactive ways that require thinking and working politically to unpack and transform both how development is done and what development is. So TWP, thinking and working politically, can be kept alive and kicking if it can serve as a lens to harness organisational change and truly empower local actors in driving their own development. Thanks, Lisa. I suspect that is not the last of the discussion on this one. And then the final post of the week, I reviewed a book by a friend of mine, Richard Lapper, Beef, Bible and Bullets, Alliterative Madness. Uh, Beef, Bible and Bullets, Brazil in the Age of Bolsonaro. So Richard is um, a long-term Brazilianist, Latin Americanist. I've known him for decades. Um, and um, <clears throat> he's done a big book on the very, very eccentric, to put a, use a neutral word, president of Brazil. So here's my review. One lesson of recent times is that countries' global reputations often have little to do with their underlying realities. The, the Netherlands is not all a happy liberal paradise of coffee houses and cyclists, and Brazil is not all sex, carnival and footballing genius. In the case of Brazil, the world has woken up to this through the rise and chaotic administration of Jair Bolsonaro, hopefully destined for the political scrap heap in this October's elections. His antics inevitably evoke those of his better-known fellow demagogue, Donald Trump, but given that both of them behave like a classic Latin American political figure, the Caudillo, perhaps it's better to say that Trump resembles Bolsonaro, not the other way around. In Beef, Bible and Bullets, FT journalist Richard Lapper provides a very detailed account of Bolsonaro's rise and period in office from a low-profile pro-military wingnut without a political project to a high-profile pro-military wingnut without a political project. As the title implies, Bolsonaro has risen to power on the back of a coalition of big cattle interests, that's the beef, evangelical Protestants, that's the Bible, and gun-toting militias, that's the bullets, and some of the military as well. Unlike Trump, Bolsonaro did actually um, uh, start his career in the army. Neither the, that president nor that coalition is stable or coherent, it turns out. Um... Lapper is deeply immersed in Brazil's cult, political culture and social tides and currents, sometimes overwhelmingly so for the non-Brazilianist. Struggling to remember all those names reminded me of trying to read Tolstoy, War and Peace, all those names. He shows how those currents, residual affection for the military, the rise of social media and eclipse of traditional forms, 
growing contempt for conventional politics driven by a succession of corruption scandals, a fierce recession, a rise in drug-fuelled social violence, came together to create a political implosion and paved the way for an anti-politics politician like Bolsonaro to come to power, which he did in 2018. His period in office, like Trump's, seems to be total chaos, characterised by snouts in the trough, a horrendous upsurge in deforestation in the Amazon and elsewhere, a war on woke and a catastrophically inept response to COVID. He has often appeared out of his depth, obsessing about minor issues like fisheries, especially tilapia, and earning the nickname the President of Small Things. Sound familiar? As we head into October's elections, that's coming up, Bolsonaro is trailing former President Lula at the polls. But don't count him out just yet, because the unpleasant truth is that many of his views chime with those of large swathes of the Brazilian public. A poll in 2020 found that 61% of Brazilians supported Bolsonaro's proposal to open schools run by the military, and majorities opposed gay marriage and abortion rights. He could still come back from the political dead. So um, <clears throat> it's hard to write these books. Um, this book kind of fizzles out because Richard doesn't want to make predictions because he realises that when you write a book about a breaking story like Brazilian politics, if you make predictions, it rather uh, it means you're likely to be proved wrong. On the other hand, if you don't, it kind of fizzles out a bit. But he is working on an update for the elections, which is great. So if you, I think it's a pretty good place to, uh, if you don't understand Brazil and you want to um, log in for the elections, it's a pretty good place to start. Okay, I'm going to go and have a little lie down and enjoy my uh, Easter because I'm very tired after I'm on, but it was, uh, I'm really glad it went well. Have a good break. Um, whether it's Ramadan or Easter or whatever you're doing. See you next week. Bye.